Welcome to Cathedral of the Rockies Amity Podcast. My name is Tyler, and I work here at Cathedral of the Rockies with Pastor Ben Kramer. As promised, here is the final part in this teaching series taught by Pastor Ben. In this final part, Ben focuses on the final two chapters of Revelation, and also looks at the final vision given to John of the heavens descending down onto earth. Uh, But before I get you to the class, I want to touch on two things. First, at the end of this recording, Ben asks the audience if there are any other books of the Bible and or topics about the Bible that people would be interested in attending another class like this for. If anything like that comes to mind while you're listening um, and you want to let us know, you can feel free to contact us to give us your ideas or um, your feedback. There will be a link in the show notes on how to contact us uh, via email. Finally, if you really enjoyed content from Ben's sermons and the things such as this teaching series, you might consider setting up a recurring giving to our church. We'd love to do more content like this and get it out there online so all of you are able to listen. Um, we are a bit understaffed on our campus, so we need to staff up a bit, but that requires um, just more church income. So in order to have a little more capacity to be able to consistently do series like this, um, that's just something we just want to throw out there um, if you're feeling like you'd want to contribute to that. I also have this vision of trying to figure out how to do online church in a way that creates genuine community for those that are seeking it. Um, So, and hopefully this podcast can kind of be a springboard for that. Um, Of course, no pressure if you aren't feeling like you can or want to give, but if it is something you would like to do or feeling that urge to do it, like I'll have a link in the show notes for you there as well. Um, But as always, this content will always be available to anyone at no cost. So um, yeah, so with that, we will hope you enjoy the final part in this teaching series on Revelation. start with this. Thanks so much for being here. (laughs) Love that you guys are here. I have loved walking this journey with you. The book of Revelation, I feel like is so relevant for our time here today. And I hope that you've picked up some some new nuggets along the way that has helped you to see the big picture of the book of Revelation um, and that you feel more equipped to approach the text yourself. And that's really my hope as a pastor is to give you tools to give you more confidence when you go to read the text yourself. This is something that's a continued practice, right? We didn't come here to get all the right answers. We're here to walk on this journey of wisdom and understanding together. Um, I was told before I went to seminary that when you graduate from seminary, you're literally going to be a music leader's worst nightmare uh, because you'll be critiquing the theology of every single song that comes through the service. So have you heard In Christ Alone? It's a really famous, In Christ Alone, right? That one. There's a line in there, and I always make the joke, how do you know you're singing next to a Wesleyan? 
when you're singing that song and it gets to the part, and on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. If you're singing next to a Wesleyan, they're going to sing even louder than you and sing, and on the cross where Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. We don't believe in that wrath satisfaction stuff, right? And so when Alex was singing this, and it's like, we, worthy is the lion and the lamb. I'm singing really loudly. Worthy is the lion who is the lamb, <laughs> right? Because it's what we've been learning in the book of Revelation. So I try not to be Alex's worst nightmare. He is such a gift here. I never want to bug him, and I never do bug him. I am the perfect boss, right, Alex? The perfect boss. I pay him to be silent at certain times. Well, let's, let's look at this. We're going to look at the final um, two, two chapters of the book of Revelation. It's Revelation 21 and 22, the new heaven and the new earth. But we're going to ask this kind of, um, we're going to uh, do a little recap of what's before it so that we can kind of understand where Revelation is going at the end of this. But as we talked last time, there's still that fundamental question, what happens to us when we die, right? We all think of that question at one point or another in our lives. And if, you, if you've approached the Bible with any seriousness, you kind of see that the Bible doesn't really focus on that question all that much, right? Jesus doesn't come along and say, and verily I tell, say unto you, this is what happens when you die. You get jettisoned up into heaven or to the other place, the bad place that we don't like to talk about, depending on your ideas about me, your beliefs about me, whether you were patriotic enough, whether you followed the rules well enough, and if you get cremated, sorry, we can't do anything with that. So make sure you're buried the whole way, right? Because we can't raise a body that isn't there, right? But in the book of Revelation, we see this movement towards resurrection. Like, what are, what are we celebrating next Sunday? Right, Easter, the resurrection of Jesus. That is the whole reason Christianity exists. It's that radical claim that this historical figure of Jesus Christ, crucified unjustly by the Romans, collusion with the religion of the time, and rose, walked out of that grave, because he really was who he claimed to be, the Son of God, God revealed in the world, right? That's the whole reason Christianity exists. And so one of the biggest things that I've learned about the Bible along the way is instead of asking this question, where do we go when we die? The Bible's not interested in this question. The Bible is interested in there is a problem called death that everybody experiences. It seems to have the last word over humanity, creation, animals, everything. Death is this problem because we stop living, right? And the Bible addresses that problem that God is trying to conquer this thing called death, right? So it's not so much about where we go when we die. It's that we're dying at all. Eternal life is what this solution that the Bible is trying to point us to and who is the gift of eternal life, right? 
It is God through Jesus Christ. And so the Bible is trying to show how God continuously tries to conquer death in creation, from the garden to the book of Revelation. And we as Christians claim that death was conquered by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? It was through his sacrifice on the cross, this innocent divine God conquered death so that we no longer have to be, so that death no longer has the last word over us. Jesus will have the last word over us. Isn't that hopeful? Death will no longer have a tyranny over us. Life will be what is given to us through Christ. And that's the gift that God keeps trying to give uh, to humanity. Now, let me show you a specific place that a lot of people will point to as kind of justification for this idea that we go somewhere immediately when we die. And I'm sure your minds are all going to that right now. In fact, let me skip a, skip a slide and just read it. Jesus answered him. This is the thief on the cross, right? They're on the cross together at the same time. And he says, Jesus answered him, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, at face value, this gives us an idea that as soon as you die, you're going to be with Jesus in paradise, right? Well, this verse has caused so much arguments among scholars of the Greek, New Testament, and all those things because of one thing. Differing manuscripts have not different words, different placement of the comma. So, and if we all know commas can be the difference between life and death, let me show you. Let's eat, Grandma. Or let's eat, Grandma. That comma just saved Grandma's life, right? Let's eat, Grandma. Let's eat, Grandma, right? So the placement of the comma here in some Greek manuscripts is Jesus answered him. Truly, I tell you today, comma, you will be with me in paradise. That changes the whole dynamic of the phrase, right? He is telling him something today. You will be with me in paradise. Or today you're going to be with me in paradise. Like it's going to happen right then. So again, we don't, this is one of those things that, you know, we can't really say a hard and fast thing because those those manuscripts um, differ with one another. But the overriding truth that Scripture is pointing to is not really the when or how of death. It's that Jesus conquers death, right? And a lot of these interpretations of like, okay, but when you die, how you die, like we get caught into those minutiae and often forget that the whole truth, the whole good news of the gospel, said Jesus conquers death. <laughs> so how you die, when you die, if you're cremated, have you heard of this new procedure where it's water cremation? I just heard about this like two weeks ago, right? Water cremation, it's, it's this new thing in, in the burial process, and I didn't, it was all over my head. They don't, I don't know if they boil you, just made me think of a lobster. I don't. I didn't mean to make our imaginations jump to boiling each other, but 
it's again, there's all these ways different customs have different treatments of death and things like that. I remember having a conversation in seminary because there's this big in many different religions, like you can't be cremated in certain religions because to be prepared for God to raise you or to receive you into the afterlife. And there are some Christian traditions who believe that too, that you can't be cremated if you want to be raised on the last day. But even as I was studying for the book of Revelation class tonight, there's a passage that says, and the martyrs were raised to be with Christ for the thousand year reign. Do we remember the ways in which the martyrs died? Some really bad ways, right? Torn apart by lions, they were burned, they were, they were shot with bows, bows and arrows, they were drowned, just torn apart, right? And Jesus raised them. And here's the kicker, too. We actually get this answer at the very beginning of our Bibles. How did God create us? God can create us out of dirt. You think God can put us back together? Right? So again, we get caught up in the hows and the ways and the whys of death when the fundamental message of the Bible is how death is conquered. Death has tyranny and power over us, but Jesus comes to conquer death. And so that's a huge, it's a huge thing to understand as we continue um, reading the scriptures. That one, did that one. Okay, new creation, new Jerusalem. Let's do a little bit of a recap of Revelation 19 through 20. This is that final battle that we talked about. Jesus arrives on a white horse. Um, all of this metaphor of like paradigms and history being um, unfolded and e evil and death is defeated. Now, uh, a point I forgot to mention last time is that the final battle is actually told twice in these two chapters. And what you'll notice in those two chapters is that what is being described is all of evil of all of human history, right? It's not just this one single epic battle at one time, but it's all of evil that has, that has just ravaged humanity and creation for all of, all of time and eternity. And this sword and the rod that we talked about, this rod of justice, Jesus shows up and his robe is dipped in blood. He's already... The battle hasn't even started yet. He's, his robe is dipped in blood, and it's his own, right? And so the way in which he defeats evil, defeats this tyranny of death, is through the word. And it's a metaphor from the book of Isaiah, the justice over all of creation, right? Creation was created through him, and he speaks the final word of justice. And um, George asked this important question about, uh, evil and the dragon and all of the people being thrown into this fiery pit of sulfa. Well, one of the nuances there that really needs to be understood is that this, um, how do I explain this? In the beginning, God created. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but really, understanding this idea where um, Genesis in the beginning, it mentions, it never mentions hell. Genesis does it. In the beginning, God created the and the and hell. You don't in Genesis one and two and three, you don't get mention of hell, right? So whatever hell is, it 
came into being with sin, right? And there's all these metaphors of hell throughout Scripture, right? It talks about a place, but it also talks about hell being unleashed on each other. The first time is with Cain and Abel, right, where Cain kills Abel. And that's a form of hell that's unleashed on each other. But then you see that happen throughout the whole Old Testament, the book of Judges, all these things. Hell is this paradigm that's being unleashed on people because of this reality of sin in the world. And hell isn't just a place that you go to. It's something that we really do inflict on each other. You'll hear the the book of James has this very potent verse in it that says um, that talking about the potency of the human tongue. And it says, when, it, when a person lies, it unleashes havoc on one another and their tongue is lit on fire with the fire of hell, right? So that's a very potent scriptural uh, image that hell is something that we can inflict on each other, right? So when you think of human trafficking, when you think of uh, the ways in which we procure minerals and things like that that are unethical, that literally create orphans around the world. When, you know, the things of Babylon that we're hearing about in the book of Revelation, right? Their power, military might, their economy that literally keeps poor people poor, keeps them desperate, keeps them hungry, keeps them in starvation. That's a kind of hell that we're inflicting on each other. And so this kind of fiery sulfur that the enemy is thrown into, hell is thrown into, Um, all of these things, this is something that they've created themselves. That they have chosen that reality over Christ. And Christ returns and gives us all an opportunity to repent from those ways of death and hell, right? But some would prefer to spend it in those kinds of hell that they've created. That Jesus then gives them, he quarantines them. It's like, okay, one of the scariest things I heard growing up, and my mom would always joke about it. It was just a joke between her and I, but like I would be so, so determined to do the the wrong thing. Like she's like, you're not supposed to do that, right? And I'm like seven, you know, I was taking too many cookies or something like that. So she's like, okay. And she repeated this phrase from the Old Testament. I turn you over to your own evil desires. And I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want that. Right. And so I'm like, I put the cookies away and you know, her and I laugh about it. And then, you know, as I get older, I'm just like, no, I'm going to do this. And she's like, all right, son, I turn you over to your own <laughs> evil design. Right. But it's, it's that idea, this idea where you have been so determined to participate in all these different ways of hell and death when the end comes and you still make that decision rather than following Christ, that's essentially what the final judgment is. Okay, this is what you wanted. This is what you have chosen over the way of the lamb. You want the way of the beast. So we need to quarantine you off. You're free to live there forever. But I have come to redeem my good creation. We can't have evil reign here anymore. So you are quarantined here to no longer impact this place of life with your ways of death. And that's the kind of arc that we have in these last two chapters where Jesus is quarantining, defeating, 
evil and death for all of human history and quarantining it off in a place that it has created for itself is kind of hell. Is everybody kind of tracking along with that narrative, right? That was a big realization for me. Um, so we, we go through those, those chapters and we see that the martyrs are raised with Jesus and serve a thousand years with Christ. Um, and all are cast in the fire, we just covered that. And that thousand year reign, some will say that it's a literal thousand year reign. That when Jesus comes back, the martyrs will be raised and they reign for a thousand years. Some say it's a metaphor for the number of a thousand is this number of completion, right? So it's all of the righteousness serving with Christ for all of eternity. But whatever the interpretation is, is that those who have been inflicted by death and pain are raised and serve and reign with Christ, right? What, this, is, this is the promise of the book of Revelation right here. If you're needing one thing to remember as you read it through, when Jesus returns, he will deal with evil forever and vindicate those who have been faithful to him. And this is, this is probably one of the best answers to what happens when we die. We can trust that when Jesus returns, he will deal with evil and death forever and vindicate those who have been faithful to him, right? That is a great answer to what happens when we die. Jesus will save us from evil and death this beautiful picture. Let's let's read a little bit of um, in Revelation chapter twenty one through twenty two, um, and just get this picture. As I'm reading these words, imagine yourself in the city that that these chapters are describing. Um, it's it's a really beautiful metaphorical, um, just elaborate picture that the Book of Revelation is painting here. Um, I'll start with the, the beginning of Revelation 21. Find the translation I like. All right. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And we can we can really learn a lot just by reading the text. So let's 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 have our imaginations open here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the former heaven and the former earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. What does that evoke in your minds when we read that? Just that first verse. What comes to mind? The water's gone, right? And we talked about that. Why is the water gone? Oh, well, we, we covered this. Well, what was the biggest source of fear for all of Israel? It happened, this, the, this family got into this giant boat with all these animals, right? So there's no more sea <laughs> because sea had become a symbol of God's judgment and wrath in the world, right? But what do we think of that one line for the former heaven and the former earth had passed away? So it's not, that's a good question. They're not saying the first. They're just saying the former. Because the first is what God has created in Genesis, right? But what had become in dominion over earth and heaven? Death. So they're talking about this dominion, 
the dominion over heaven and earth, that had passed away. And this new, redeemed heaven and earth is coming, right? So I, I get locked into that same kind of thing too. It's like when it says new, new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth, I think that the old is destroyed or obliterated. But no, we learn this in the resurrection. Was Jesus' body obliterated? What could you see in his, in his hands and in his side? The, the marks, right? That sun is just right in my eye. You can see the marks of his crucifixion. His body was not obl- obliterated. It was resurrected and redeemed, right? And so that's, that's kind of what it's talking about here, is the heavens and earth are now redeemed, saved from death, and, and resurrected in a cosmic sense. Verse 2. And this one really, really punched me between the eyes when I, I was in seminary, still really like holding on to the rapture with a death grip. And I read this verse too. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Coming where? Down? I'm not going up? What's happening? I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. So what what brings what comes to mind when you read that? Lord's Prayer. How so? Expound on that a little bit. So beautiful. Yes. And this idea of this new Jerusalem that was the holy city, the center of the promised land, right? So all of those imagery is supposed to be invoked. And you also have the metaphor of what has been described as how the church has been described as what? A beautiful bride, right? So again, John is using metaphors, putting them in a Cuisinart and pushing go, <laughs> right? New Jerusalem, that's an Old Testament paradigm. New Testament, bride the church, fusing these things together, the, the goal of Israel and the church are fulfilled in Christ. And this is the culmination of that relationship. All of God's people who are faithful to Christ, dressed beautifully as a bride, waiting for her husband on, on the wedding day, and the new heavens and new earth are coming together. And I heard a loud voice from the throne say, look, God's dwelling is here with humankind. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. There will be no mourning, crying, or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. There's that paradigm shift again. The former things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making all things new. He also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, All is done. I am the Alpha, the beginning, and the Omega, the end. To the thirsty I will freely give water from the life-giving spring. The, and the Greek there says, With no cost. It's, that's something I like to emphasize on that verse. There is no cost for this living water. Freely. I will freely give to those who thirst. 
this life-giving spring. Those who emerge victorious will inherit these things. I will be their God and they will be my sons and daughters. But for the cowardly, the faithful, faithless, the vile, the murderers, those who commit sexual immorality, those who use drugs and cast spells, the idolaters and the liars, their, shall, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death. So again, there's that second death language there. And those are the ones who are committed to what? All that bad stuff that was just mentioned. When Christ shows up on the scene and you're like, okay, everything they said is true. <laughs> Jesus is the Son of God. He's here. People are raising from the dead. All this crazy stuff is happening. I'm still going to be a murderer. I'm still going to cause this havoc, this death in the world, right? This is what the book of Revelation is trying to get at. I'm still going to be committed to these very destructive things. And a lot of people will get into that list and say, oh, you know, and they define it into their moral spectrum and stuff like that. And they like to start condemning people now. When whose job is it to judge humanity? So when someone comes up and says, oh, I read this one word, um, sexual immoral, and I think I know everyone who is guilty of that, and I'm going to let them know it. Who do they think they are? God. It's a really icky place to be, right? That's what the prophets would call idolatry, when you start seeing yourself empowered with the power of God rather than humility. All right, New Jerusalem. Then one of the seven angels, this is verse 9, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues spoke with me. Come, he said, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. He took me to the spirit-inspired trance to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city of Jerusalem. Again, coming down out of heaven from God. And again, do you see how John repeats himself? He tells the same story twice, just like the battle scene told that twice. He's told several things twice in a row because he's really trying to drive home this point. Um, my friend told at this table over here said an incredible way of describing the book of Revelation. So instead of thinking it, of it as a linear story, like beginning to end, that's how I like stories, right? Nice, cut and dry, clear, beginning and ending, right? That's a good story. The book of Revelation, though, is written more like a spiral. So it tells this, this singular theme of faithfulness and that God will defeat all of evil and death. Then it's all of human history. God will defeat evil and death. Be faithful. And then it's God will defeat all of the cosmic evil and death. Remain faithful to Christ, right? And it culminates in this great big arc. And that story just gets bigger and bigger and more cosmic and, and grander than we ever imagined towards the end, right? To where it's encompassing all of heaven and earth. So instead of a linear, it's really important to think of it as like a spiral moving up to where he's covering all of these bases all at once until it gets really grand at the end of these chapters that we're reading here. And he's describing the city. There were gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on, on the west. It's describing its grandeur. The city wall had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the Lamb's 12 apostles. The angel who spoke to me had a gold measuring rod with which the measure of the city 
its gates, and, and its walls. Now, the city was laid out as a square, its length, and he gets into a great detail here of uh, like all the stones and things like that. And what we're, what we're being told here again is like, this was a massive, massive city. And it looks just like a, an empire, but also a temple. It uses all of the elements that the temple would have been used to be built. So what he's describing here, we're supposed to think it's not only a grand empire, but it's also this place of sacred worship for God. But then here's the climax after all of this description of the city, this empire. In verse 22, what does he not see? I didn't see a temple in the city. Now this is cataclysmic because in, in especially in Jewish thought and this Christianity is a Jewish movement out of Judaism, the temple is the physical personal place of God in the world. To encounter God, you had to go to the temple. And so for this city to not have a temple, this question is, well, where do we encounter God? Where are we going to, to find God? But this is why. I didn't see a temple in the city because its temple is the Lord, God Almighty, and the Lamb. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine even because God's glory is its light and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. So again, its gates will never be closed. It, what's that? When you're in an, a, a first century where all your understanding of architecture is walls and gates, this is a beautiful metaphor because gates were used to oppress the marginalized and the vulnerable and keep people out. And to, to say that God's city, its gates will not be closed. Again, it's this idea. Why describe Jesus as the lion or the lamb, right? He has the power of the lion, but lives as the lamb. The city has the power to close people out, the power to, to unleash and flick its power over the world, but it won't do that. It leaves the gates open. So excellent, excellent question. The nations will walk by light. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is vile and deceitful, but only those who are registered in the Lamb's scroll of life. Okay. This, these last few verses, the gates will never be open, the gates will never be closed, and nothing unclean will ever enter it. To me, this is such a beautiful picture of God that I don't think we really think about often enough. One, the gates are never closed. And according to this, unclean people still exist. They're wandering outside. This is after the final judgment. What kind of God are we serving? A God of grace. Second chances. If there's people still wandering around outside and the gates are open, maybe there's still an opportunity to be reconciled. Isn't that a powerful picture? Like John is painting this idea. There's still people wandering around outside that aren't written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But 
maybe they have an opportunity to still do that and maybe still enter in. Like that, that's a powerful picture to me. All right. And we're at the last chapter. And everyone said, Amen. The angel showed me the river of life-giving water, shining like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the city's main street. Now, there again, okay? This is another contradiction for, like, biblical literalism, right? The previous chapter, just the previous chapter said there is no sea. I'm like, okay, if we were literalists, we'd be like, all right, there's no sea in heaven. Chapter 22, the life-giving stream, like crystal water flowing from... It's not trying to be literalistic word for word, right? It's trying to convey an ultimate point here. Through the throne of God and the land, through the middle of the city's main streets, on each side of the river is the tree of life, which produces 12 crops of fruit, bearing its fruit each month. Each month. So perpetual food. This is like, have you ever seen Star Trek? Where you could just go up to the machine in the wall and say, I'll have an Earl Grey tea, and it just makes it for you, right? That's essentially what it's describing, this endless supply of food. No one is going hungry, right? There will no longer be any curse. Um, I skipped an important part. Let, let's look at verse 2 again. To the middle of the city, on each side of the river is the tree of life, which produces 12 crops of fruit, bearing its fruit each month. And listen to this verse. The tree's leaves are there for the healing of the nations. What does that say to you? Like, that's such a powerful phrase to me. The leaves of the tree of life are there for the healing of the nations. What does that bring to me? Right. They're no longer at war. What else? They look at each other as family. What else? What? And I'm trying to ask this in a in a leading way. What do you need? What has to be present for healing to take place? Pain. Sickness. Like there has to be a wound there right? Friends, this is after the final judgment. This is after Jesus has come back. This is after the new Jerusalem has been set up. The city is here. <laughs> and the leaves of the tree of life are still working on that ongoing work of healing. Right? Again, another opportunity for those to be redeemed. For those who are wounded to find healing. God never gives up. <laughs> never gives up on creation. That, 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 uh, that phrase just hit me so, so much, and it always has. There will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. And it's mentioned night will be more, no more several times, hasn't it? <laughs> they won't need the lamp, the light of the lamp for the light of the sun, for the Lord God will shine on them and they will rule forever and always. And then this is the 
kind of the end of the book where uh, he talks about Jesus coming soon and again emphasizes this need for faithfulness. So what does that picture of this new heaven and new earth bring to mind to you? What other parts of the Bible does that kind of point to? You think of tree of life, you think of Genesis, right? So John, again, is using what we know. The the vision that was given to him is the Garden of Eden. So we're going back to God's original design for creation. That humanity will be in partnership with God, tending for creation and charting their course into the future together. No longer divided by curse or sin, but they are in perfect relationship with each other and with God, and with creation, and they are moving into the future as one together. But New Jerusalem takes it a bit further. It's not just a garden anymore, is it? It is a city. It is a massive kingdom. And humanity is not only raised, but redeemed and, and, and transformed into divinity with God so that they can chart this course into the future together. It is a place of bounty, of plenty, where there is no pain, there's no curse, there's no, it it is just this divine ecstasy with God and with each other um, for all of the future. And that is really, again, re-emphasizing this promise um, throughout all of um, the book of Revelation. So let's just recap some of these main promises that it continues to emphasize. The book of Revelation reveals history's pattern that every human kingdom eventually becomes Babylon and must be resisted by the way of the Lamb. That's the consistent message to the churches from the beginning all throughout human history that every human kingdom eventually becomes Babylon in one way or another. When I say, is there any perfect human kingdom? You say, In one way or another, every human kingdom eventually becomes Rome or Babylon. As we learned, that's the way of the beast, right? And must be resisted by what? The way of the Lamb. But here is the central promise of the book of Revelation. God, the creator revealed in Christ, will not let Babylon go unchecked. All God's people said, amen. Will not allow a Babylon to go unchecked. And he will return one day and end the reign of evil and death forever and make all things new. And that is a promise that should motivate faithfulness in all of God's people. From the time the book of Revelation was written till now, this is what the kind of faithfulness the book of Revelation has been trying to evoke in Christians who are in being persecuted and Christians of all stripe to remain faithful to God, even in the midst of great evil and death in the world, to maintain the way of Christ, the way of life in the face of death, knowing that God is going to come, restore creation. And so we have that hope to continue being faithful in pursuit of. So before we have just a few minutes left, um, before I release you, I I don't want to let you go without 
processing some of the maybe questions or just comments that you might have about this course as a whole or what we covered tonight. Um, any thoughts or comments you want to process a bit more? George? Right? Yeah. And that's, I think that's such a central question for Christians. And I think even in the book of Revelation, the way of the Lamb is a particular way of acting and being in the world, right? But whereas the world would say the only productive thing is violence and power, right? The way of the Lamb says, even if I give my own life, I am doing that knowing that giving my life will bring about the restoration of the world. That it's a different way of acting in the world, right? And you do that in pursuit of justice, right? What, is, what does the prophet say? This is what I require of you, to walk humbly, to love mercy, and seek justice and walk humbly with your God, right? Seeking justice is not an easy thing to do, right? It may even require of your life, but it doesn't ask us to take the life of our enemies. Like we see this contrast in Jesus who would rather die for his enemies than kill them, right? So it's a very different way of being in the world, but it's not inactivity, right? And so that whole cosmic plan, God wanted to be together with humanity at the beginning. Heaven and earth are one. And then sin split heaven and earth apart. Hell split heaven and earth apart, essentially. And from Genesis forward, God is trying to bring heaven and earth together as one again. And how does, how does that need to happen? Well, sin and death need to be gone out of the picture. And God tried all these different ways. We have the covenant. We have the law, Moses. God keeps trying to obliterate death from the world, tried with the flood. Then God became one of us to restore humanity, to heal from within. Tried all these external things, but then God became human himself to heal humanity from within, took sin on the cross, defeated it. And you see Jesus throughout all of his ministry. He's these little pockets of heaven. I heal you. I give this to the poor. I feed this group of people. These are pockets of heaven, what we're looking for in Christ's ministry, right? And then when Christ returns, heaven and earth are restored to, as one, and sin and hell are no longer. What, what other thoughts or comments do you have? Yes. <clears throat> right. Well, so again, yeah, so th that's a really valid point. And this is what's caused a lot of controversy in Christianity. If you haven't noticed, we all agree on everything, Christians everywhere, right? So I'm surprised that you disagree with something that's in the book. No, I'm just kidding. So this idea of faithfulness is something that has really caused a lot of controversy in Christianity because it's like, is it the set of ideas that we're judged by, that we get entry into heaven? Like, what does that faithfulness look like? And that's an essential question. What does being written in the Lamb's Book of Life look like as opposed to being those who are on the outside or in the fiery sulfur, right? For, for who knows how long. This notion of faithfulness, as I have come to see it, is that we are not participating in the ways of death. Those who participate in the ways of death arrive there with the new Jerusalem. They're there, but they're, they have decided to live their whole lives that way, participating in those ways of the beast, participating in the ways of death. And when Jesus returns, there's another opportunity right there, right? 
but they, they may decide still to remain faithful to the ways of Babylon, the ways of the beast, the ways of death, the ways of evil and tyranny in the world, rather than the way of the lamb, which is self-sacrificial love. But, right. But the, the question is, the question is, do you want to be wiped out with that evil or not? Right. And I think that's the crux that the book of Revelation gets to, is that we, we all arrive there, the new heaven, new earth, but there are those who will still decide <laughs> to live in that, that place and be really obliterated with evil itself um, rather than being in the, in the new kingdom. Um, and that's really, and the Bible does a really good job that we kind of gloss over, does a really good job at saying, Ending up in that fiery sulfur is not God's decision for you. It's yours. <laughs> you decide to be there. Because what is that? What is hell? The basic definition of hell is separation from God. So you can only get there when you have worked really hard to separate yourself from God. right? And American Christianity has made that really moralistic. Like if you don't believe the right things or act the right way, that's it for you. Right? And God knows your heart. <laughs> God knows the inner workings of who you are. That's why God needs to be the final judge over us because I can't see into anyone's heart. I have a pretty good idea about this guy. But I don't, I don't know anyone. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but we can't see into each other's heart or mind, right? That's why we can't make this an overly moralistic or overly intellectual thing. The way of the Lamb is this collective work together to participate with life. I may be getting in trouble here with this, but I think one of, the, one of the most relevant issues right now is gun violence. In, in our country that has more guns than people, are we collectively participating in the ways of death where even school children are unsafe? for the production of weapons, for, for even my own rights. And like the whole conversation has gotten so convoluted. Common sense gun restrictions doesn't mean disarming everyone, right? It's not an either or thing. But there is a way of the beast that's going on here where we have elevated the gun to such an idol-like status that we are sacrificing our children to this idol. And do you know who the number one do you know what the number one statistic of gun owners look like? Evangelical Christians are, some, are the greatest demographic of gun owners. So this is a Christian conversation as well. How we've treated the gun in our faith. This is a stark question. That's just one issue of comparing the ways of the beast, what is producing a culture of death in our world. There are more mass shootings this year than there are days in the year already. How are we perpetuating that system of Babylon? That is a way of the beast in the world. What does the way of the lamb look like in the face of that? It doesn't look like violence. It doesn't look like responding to violence. In fact, it looks like the opposite of that, right? It looks like choosing the way of conquering death with solutions that bring about life, that protect life, that treat life as sacred, right? I don't have all the answers to political things, but I know theologically 
I know the ways of the beast when I see it. <laughs> and the way of the lamb is so desperately needed in that issue like that. Any other thoughts or it's past seven now. Let's maybe one more. Do we have one more thought or comment? When I said I, I know I have a pretty good idea about him, it was a good idea. A really good idea. Yeah, just to clear that. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else, my friends? Has this been an enjoyable experience for you? Okay. I'm so glad to hear that. Thank you so much for being a part of this. And gosh, you all showed up every single night of this four-week class. You know, I should bake you brownies or something, but you wouldn't want the brownies that I bake. So um, we're hoping, <laughs> let, me, let me ask you this question. If there was a book of the Bible that you'd want to study next, what would that be? Do you have a thought? James? See, I like short books. She, she's she's on to something. Okay, James, there's a vote for James. Any other ideas? Anyone? Okay. <laughs> I I would also love, and I, I'm thinking I'm trying to nudge both campuses to do a sermon series just on the first three chapters of Genesis. I think that would be so, just so rich. Um, so that's what I'm hoping. And if not, we're going we're gonna to do a Wednesday night on the first three chapters of Genesis too. Is there a topic that you'd want to cover? That's maybe not a book of the Bible, but there's a topic in Christianity that you're like, this has always just grinded my gears. <laughs> Any topic that kind of comes to mind? No, you guys have all the answers. That's great. Well, thank you for uh, saying the book of James. I'll keep... Uh, thinking about that but if you have any ideas about what you'd like to cover later maybe there's a book or the bible or a different book that you'd like to look at just shoot me an email um that way we can put our next class thanks again for coming tonight let me let me pray for us before we thank you so much for listening if you'd like to, we'd very much appreciate it if you would subscribe to this podcast as well as rate and review it. Also, if you'd like to connect with us, you can email us at amity.campus at boisefumc.org. That email will be in the show notes. Finally, as a smaller congregation, our budget is pretty tight. If you'd like to help out and donate to us, there is a link to do so in the show notes. Of course, no pressure, only if you're feeling called to give. But more income does mean possibly more content and better quality of content, as well as supporting our current ministries and those we'd like to expand on. Thank you. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day.